Tonight's sensational scoops. Wilson's veto vetoed, Woodrow's teeth pulled. Ah, uh, Bellini's Baldry breakaway, Louisiana's lone wolf. And Russians roast civilians in Grozny Grill. Plus, coming up, the latest on the mysterious disappearance of the sixth dimension. We ask, where did it go? Those are the headlines. Don't you dare change the channel. News bang, cutting through the fog of misinformation with a machete of facts. Tatinda 1917. On this day in 1917, the US Congress decided they'd had enough of these immigrants coming over here, taking their jobs and eating their food. So they passed the Immigration Act of 1917, a law so racist it was like being mugged by a burning cross. President Woodrow Wilson tried to veto it, but alas, he was outnumbered by men in hoods with poor spelling skills. The Act imposed literacy tests on newcomers because nothing says land of opportunity like asking an illiterate person to read War and Peace in Esperanto. It also created new categories of inadmissible persons, which included Asians, Southern Europeans, and anyone who looked at them funny on public transportation. Wilson, known for his progressive views on war, he loved it, and world peace, he may, reluctantly signed the bill into law between sips of his KKKK old aid. The act marked a turn towards nativism, not to be confused with Nabiscovism or Cheetoism, which is when you don't like foreigners unless they can cook your dinner or clean your house for pennies an hour. Thankfully, saner heads prevailed in 1924 when the act was amended by people who realized that America was built on stolen land by immigrants. Except for the Native Americans, we still don't talk about them. 1861 on this day in 1861, Louisiana decided to spice things up a bit by seceding from the Union and joining the Confederate States. It was like a state-sized game of musical chairs, but with more flags and cannons. Amidst the chaos, one man stood tall, or rather sat stubbornly, Representative John Edward Bouligny. This political maverick refused to resign from Congress despite his entire state's tantrum. I ain't leaving! he drawled defiantly through a mouthful of grits. I was lected fair and square at the last hog-calling contest, and I ain't going nowhere till they pry me out of my rocking chair. His constituents were torn between admiration for his tenacity and confusion as to why he still cared about politics when all around them crumbled into civil war. In related news, local plantation owner Bo Bellhaven expressed concern over where he would get his representation now that Bouligny had dug his heels in so deep they hit the earth's core. What am I supposed to do? Free my slaves? He mused aloud before returning to whipping poor harvest yields into shape. It is Tonight we bring you a chilling story from the front lines of the Second Chechen War. In 20,000 Russian forces stormed Grozny's Novialdi suburb, where they committed atrocities that would make even Joseph Stalin blush. Civilians were rounded up and shot in what has become known as the Novialdi Massacre. Eyewitnesses described scenes of carnage as innocent shoppers were gunned down in the aisles, their discount groceries spilling onto blood-soaked floors. It was like Black Friday, said one survivor, but with more bullets and less queuing etiquette. The massacre left up to 82 dead and countless others traumatized for life. 
As well as indiscriminate killing, reports emerged of looting, mainly confectionery aisle, rape, mostly self-checkout, arson in the frozen food section, and robbery, dairy aisle. This senseless violence brought shame on both sides involved, those who perpetrated it and those who just stood there with their trolleys full of bargains. The United Nations condemned these actions but then remembered they were out of vouchers so thought better of it. Meanwhile, shoppers worldwide have been advised to avoid any future sales events in war zones. News Bang, the only news source that doesn't need to be fact-checked. Weather now, and Shakanaka Giles with the lowdown on the meteorological shenanigans we can expect for tomorrow. Our tomorrow's weather, starting in the southeast, where it will be a bit like a cat's purr, soft and gentle, with a touch of drizzle, a bit like a cat's paw tapping on the window, really. Moving on to the Midlands, where it will be a bit like a wet dog shaking itself dry. Expect a few showers, but nothing too dramatic. In the north, it'll be a bit like a, a, a bear waking up from, from hibernation, a grumpy and cold. Expect temperatures to drop and perhaps a bit of snow. Over in Wales, it'll be a bit like a dragon's breath with strong winds and a touch of rain. In Scotland, it'll be a bit like a kilt in a highland gale with strong winds and a bit of rain. And finally, in Northern Ireland, it'll be a bit like a leprechaun's laugh with a bit of sunshine and a touch of rain. In summary, a bit of a mixed bag with a touch of everything. And that's all the weather. ED Days 2004. In a stunning turn of events, the National Revolutionary Front for the Liberation of Haiti has staged a coup against President Jean Bertrand Aristide's government, seizing control of the city of Gonaives. This rebel group, later known as the National Revolutionary Front for the Liberation and Reconstruction of Haiti, now holds sway over most of the country. The coup has led to Aristide's ousting and subsequent exile. Aristide, a former Salesian priest and politician, was Haiti's first democratically elected president and an advocate for liberation theology. For more on this unfolding situation, we turn to our correspondent, Brian Bastable, who is on the ground in Haiti. The city of Gonaives, a teeming metropolis of chaos and calamity, has fallen to the National Revolutionary Front for the liberation of Haiti. The country is now in their grip. As I stand here, shells rain down like the tears of the damned. The sky is alight with the fires of war. The smell of blood and smoke fills the air. The ground shakes beneath the onslaught of tanks and artillery. President Aristide, a man of the people, a beacon of hope, has been toppled. He was a man who dared to dream of a better world, a world free from poverty and oppression. But now he is gone, exiled, forced to flee for his life. The people of Haiti are left to face the horrors of war alone. 
The streets are filled with the screams of the dying and the wails of the bereaved. The sound of gunfire is constant, a never-ending symphony of death. But amidst the chaos, there is hope. The people of Haiti will not be silenced. They will not be broken. They will fight on for their freedom, for their future. This is my war, this is your war, and we will fight it together. Brian Bastable, Newsbang, reporting from the front lines of the Haitian coup d'etat. Haiti does 2004. The clock struck 2004 and a tragedy of epic proportions unfolded in Morecambe Bay, England. A gathering storm of at least 21 souls, harvesting cockles in the estuary's treacherous depths, succumbed to the merciless waves. The common cockle, an edible saltwater clam, was the unlikely catalyst for this calamity. The gangmaster's licensing authority rose from the ashes of this catastrophe, vowing to shield vulnerable workers from exploitation. But as we delve deeper into the murky waters of Morecambe Bay, what other secrets lie beneath? To shed light on this enigma, we turn to our resident investigative journalist, Ken Shit. Folks, gather round and listen up, because tonight we're talking about a tragedy that'll make your blood boil. It's February 5th, 2004, and the waters of Morecambe Bay, that godforsaken estuary in the northwest of England, run red with blood. 21 Chinese immigrants working like slaves to harvest cockles, a disgusting delicacy favoured by the British. They were lured to England with promises of work and a better life, only to be thrown to the mercy of ruthless gangmasters who couldn't give a rat's ass about their safety. These poor bastards were paid pennies for their hard work, forced to endure treacherous conditions and left to fend for themselves in a place where the tide could turn on a dime. And turn it did, sweeping these helpless souls out to sea like so much flotsam and jetsam. This disaster led to the establishment of the Gangmasters Licensing Authority, a supposed safeguard against labour exploitation in the UK. But is it enough? Are these greedy bastards finally being held accountable for their crimes? I say no, folks. Until we see real change, until these scumbags are brought to justice, we'll continue to see innocent lives lost in the pursuit of profit. It's a damn shame, and it makes me sick to my stomach. This is Ken Shit signing off and leaving you with this question. How many more lives will be lost before we finally put an end to this outrageous exploitation? Tatinda 1917 in a move that would set the tone for future immigration policies, the United States Congress passed the Immigration Act of 1917, a piece of legislation that aimed to restrict immigration by imposing literacy tests and creating new categories of inadmissible persons. The Act, which overrode President Woodrow Wilson's veto, also established new restrictions on immigrants, including a ban on people from much of Asia. As America grappled with its role in World War I and advocated for the League of Nations, this act marked a turn toward nativism. It would later be amended by the Immigration Act of 1924. To delve deeper into the implications of this law and its impact on American society, we turn to our reporter Hardeman Pesto. I'm here in Washington, D.C., where President Woodrow Wilson has just signed into law the Immigration Act of 1917, a controversial move that imposes strict limits on immigration to the United States. With me is Secretary of Labor William B. Wilson. Mr. Secretary, 
Can you explain why the president decided to sign this bill, despite his earlier opposition? Well, Pesto, the president strongly believes that during this time of war, we must ensure the integrity of our borders and carefully vet all foreigners seeking to enter the country. Certain elements pose unacceptable risks. So you're saying German spies could sneak in while we're focused on the war? No, no, nothing of the sort. We simply need to limit immigration to safeguard jobs and wages for American workers. This is not about any one nationality. Except the Chinese who are now completely banned. Wasn't the president friendly with China in the past? This seems like a major reversal. The president understands the Chinese exclusion provision is regrettable, but necessary to get this bill passed. The literacy test applies equally to all nationalities. Literacy test? You mean immigrants have to read now? Yes, Pesto, in English, we must ensure new arrivals can fully participate in our society. But Mr. Secretary, sources tell me President Wilson himself would fail that test. His aides read state papers to him because his eyesight is so poor. Should we deport the president back to Scotland? Now see here, that's going too far. The president's eyesight and grasp of issues is just fine. If you say so, Mr. Secretary, this is Pesto Hardiman signing off from the literacy-challenged White House. Back to you, Martin. Pesto, you imbecile. The president is not illiterate. He has a Nobel Prize. His father was Scottish, but Woodrow Wilson was born in Virginia. Oh, never mind. We're out of time. In the News bang. Taking the pulse of truth and giving it a good squeeze. Our sport correspondent, Ryder Boff, takes a look back at the record-breaking innings of Australian cricketer Bill Ponsford in 1923, a colossal score that still echoes through the annals of cricket history. The year is 1923, and let me tell you, the cricketing world has been set ablaze. Australian cricketer Bill Ponsford, not to be confused with Bill Posters, who will be prosecuted, has shattered the world record for the highest first-class score by amassing a colossal 429 runs. A veritable Hercules of the crease. His bat swung with the might of Thor's hammer as he dispatched ball after ball to every corner of the ground. Ponsford at the wicket now, his stance as solid as an oak tree in an English country garden. The bowler's approaches, and it's a scorcher down leg side, but wait, Ponsford's on it like a tramp on chips, sending it soaring over into Mrs. Miggins' picnic area. That's going to cost her a sandwich or two. And what about his partnership with Bill Woodfull? Together, they're like Morecam and Wise with Willow instead of Wit, inseparable and indomitable. They've carved up records like a Sunday roast at your nan's house. Now, speaking of partnerships, I once had a partner myself, in doubles tennis, that is. Big backhand Barry, they called him. Had a swing so wild, he once knocked out three spectators and an umpire before breakfast was served. But back to Ponford. He stands there now among cricketing giants, his name etched into history like graffiti on a public toilet door. Impossible to ignore and slightly awe-inspiring. First-class cricket is one of those games where you need stamina like a marathon runner mixed with the concentration of an air traffic controller during holiday season. Not for the faint-hearted or weak-bladdered. As we look back from our vantage point here in 2024, we can only imagine what went through Ponsford's mind as he racked up those runs. Perhaps thoughts of glory or maybe just wondering what was for tea. 
And remember, folks, this was back when men were men and pads were something you found in your sister's bedroom drawer, not strapped around your legs for protection against leather missiles hurled at your shins. I've been Ryder Boff bringing you another slice of sporting history baked fresh from the oven of time itself. Here's Polly Beep, steering us through the unpredictable world of traffic and travel. Take it away, Polly. Ladies and gentlemen, brace yourselves for a whirlwind of traffic and travel shenanigans as we hop into our time machine and set the dial to the year 2009. First off, we're whizzing over to the balmy shores of Oahu, Hawaii. If you're planning a leisurely cruise around the island, you might want to avoid the USS Port Royal. It seems this US Navy guided missile cruiser has gone and got itself grounded on a coral reef. They're causing quite the kerfuffle, not only damaging the reef, but also the ship. I'd say they've really put the miss in missile cruiser. Meanwhile, back on the mainland, it appears the Mississippi River has decided to take a detour. Instead of its usual route, it's now flowing through the heart of downtown Las Vegas. Drivers on the Las Vegas Strip are advised to keep their windshield wipers on and their life vests handy. In other news, the Golden Gate Bridge has taken a leaf out of the USS Port Royal's book and has decided to go for a swim. Commuters are advised to avoid the area and take the Bay Bridge instead. So there you have it, folks. From grounded ships to wandering rivers and migrating canyons, it's just another day in the world of traffic and travel. This is Polly Beep, signing off with a reminder to keep your eyes on the road and your hands on the wheel. Or the oars, depending on where you find yourself today. 1944. Our correspondent Calamity Prenderville delves into the past to explore the story of Colossus, the world's first programmable digital computer. Hear how it broke codes during World War II and changed history. Well, gather round, folks. It's time for a blast from the past. I'm talking about a time when computers were the size of a room and used more electricity than a small village. I'm talking about Colossus, the world's first programmable digital computer. It all started during World War II when the British government decided to build a machine that could crack codes faster than a room full of mathletes. And so, Colossus was born. This behemoth used thermionic valves for operations and wasn't programmed with a stored program. That's right, folks. It was like a giant calculator that only knew how to do one thing, break codes. But boy, could it break codes? The brains behind this operation were none other than the Government Communications Headquarters, GCHQ. These spies-turned-computer scientists worked tirelessly to create Colossus in the top-secret location of Bletchley Park. This wasn't just any old park, mind you. It was located in Milton Keynes, which is practically its own country. Um, now I know what you're really thinking. Calamity! How did this massive machine actually work? Well, let me tell you, Colossus used a system of code breaking 
that was so complex it would make your head spin. But don't worry, folks. The GCHQ spies made sure that Colossus was up to the task. So there you have it. A brief history of Colossus, the world's first programmable digital computer. It just goes to show that even in the darkest of times, British innovation can still find a way to shine. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go write some letters on my BBC Micro using my trusty modem. Who knows? Maybe one day I'll be able to send them via email. News bang, poking holes in the balloon of bullshit. Here's Sandy O'Shaughnessy, your friend from the Emerald Isle, to discuss a historic monarch and a royal union. He'll make you feel like you're sitting by the fireplace, sipping something warm and delightful. Ah, and a very good evening to you all. It's your old friend, Sandy O'Shaughnessy here, beaming into your homes from the heart of the Emerald Isle. I hope you've all had a splendid day and you're ready for a little bit of history, a sprinkle of humour, and a whole lot of cosy chatter. So, grab your favourite mug, fill it with something warm and delicious, and let's dive into the annals of time. Ah. <laughs> now, let's take a little trip back to the year 1818. Can you imagine it? The air was filled with the scent of freshly baked bread, the sound of horse hooves on cobblestone streets, and the gentle hum of people going about their lives. And in the midst of it all, a new king was about to make his mark on the world. Ah. <laughs> Charles XXIV. John, the first monarch of the House of Bernadotte, was crowned King of Sweden and Norway. A marshal of France during the Napoleonic Wars, this man was no stranger to the dance of power and politics. And as I've learned from my dear Aunt Agnes, who's been known to dance a jig or two in her time, it's all about the right steps and the right partners. Ah. Now, Charles was quite the catch, if I do say so myself. He played a significant role in the union of Sweden and Norway, a feat that would make even the most seasoned matchmaker proud. And just like a well-crafted love story, this union has stood the test of time. Fast forward to the present day, and the House of Bernadotte is still going strong. The current king, Carl XVI Gustav, is a direct descendant of our man, Charles XXIV John. It's a royal lineage that would give even the most complicated family tree a run for its money. Ah. <laughs> Speaking of family trees, I received a delightful letter from Seamus in Kilkenny. He writes, Dear Sandy, I've traced my family tree back to the 16th century, and it turns out I'm related to a goat. Any advice on how to break this to the family? Well, Seamus, I'd say, Embrace your inner billy goat and lead the family in a rousing rendition of The Wild Rover at your next gathering. Ah. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's funny how history has a way of connecting us all, whether it's through royal lineages or unexpected family ties. And as we journey through this grand tapestry of tales, I'm reminded of the wise words of my old granny. She used to say, Sandy, Life is like a bowl of stew. It's the mix of ingredients that makes it truly special. Ah. <laughs> so, as we continue to stir the pot of history, let's raise a toast to the unexpected, the extraordinary, and the downright ridiculous. After all, it's these moments that make life truly worth living. Ah. <laughs> and with that, dear friends, it's time for me to bid you a fond farewell. But remember, 
It's not goodbye. It's just, see you later, alligator, in a while, crocodile. Until next time, keep those letters coming. And as always, take care of yourselves and each other. Tulip mania, a 17th century phenomenon in the Dutch Republic, saw sales of rare tulip bulbs skyrocket to unprecedented levels. The United Provinces of the Netherlands, also known as the Republic of the Seven United Netherlands, experienced this economic bubble firsthand. Today, tulip mania serves as a metaphor for any large-scale economic bubble where asset prices wildly deviate from intrinsic values. For more on this fascinating chapter in financial history, we turn to our business correspondent Perkins Stornoway. The tulip market goes bananas today. Dogger, moderate, becoming rough. A whopping 98 sales of rare tulip bulbs were recorded on the last day of tulip mania. Forties, veering southeast. Prices reached extraordinarily high levels, much like the tall stems of the bulbiferous geophytes. Shannon, becoming cyclonic. The Dutch Republic, Viking, slight, occasionally poor. They had a floral frenzy, with the bulbs trading at a staggering 1,000 Dutch guilders each. Cromarty, east, occasionally poor. Tulip speculation turned their world upside down. Fastnet, fair, occasionally poor. In 1637, tulip bulbs became more expensive than real estate. Lundy, fair. The trend was catching on, and soon enough, other countries were going bulb crazy too. Thames, light rain, occasional fog. The bubble, Hebrides, occasionally rough, became so large it threatened to burst the entire economy. German bite, fair. Tulip prices soared and soared, like the blooms on a sunny day. By today, Trafalgar, west, becoming poor. Tulip mania peaked, forcing everyone to sell their bulbs. Fair Isle, variable three or four. The Dutch found themselves in a pickle as the prices collapsed overnight. So, it's been a colourful day in the financial markets. Bailey, wind southwest, three or four. The period of tulip mania was a strange, chaotic time. Dover, slight or moderate. This, of course, leads us to the question, Shannon, South, veering southwest, five or six. How can we avoid such economic bubbles in the future? Rockall, west or northwest, three or four. It's a tricky question, Cromarty, east or northeast, three or four. But one thing's for sure, Thames, light rain, occasional fog. We'll need to watch out for those bright and colourful bubbles. Business. Illusion. 1913. In a remarkable resurgence of interest, Claudio Monteverdi's final opera, L'Incoronazione di Popea, has been brought back to life after more than two centuries in the shadows. The opera, which chronicles Popeye's ascent to the Roman throne, was long disregarded until its rediscovery in 1888. Since then, it has garnered significant scholarly attention and has been performed and recorded numerous times. Indeed, it seems that the world of 1913 cannot get enough of Papia and her scandalous tale. Joining me now to discuss this revival is our resident culture correspondent, Smithsonian Moss. 
Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, culture vultures. It's your girl Smithsonian Moss, and have I got a time-warping treat for you tonight. Buckle up, buttercups, because we're taking a deep dive into the past, all the way back to 1913 when Claudio Monteverdi's opera, L'Incoronazione di Popea, hit the stage like a wrecking ball after collecting dust for over two and a half centuries. Now, for those of you who aren't opera buffs, this ain't your grandma's soap opera. This is the real deal. The OG of scandalous stage shows. We're talking about the ultimate power couple, Papia and Emperor Nero, getting their freak on and turning ancient Rome upside down. It's like House of Cards with togas and less Netflix. But get this. The opera was MIA for ages, until some nosy musicologist in 1888 was like, Hey, what's this dusty manuscript? And bam. Monteverdi's masterpiece was back, baby. It's like finding a vintage Gucci in your attic, except it's an opera and doesn't smell like mothballs. Since its resurrection, L'Incoronazione di Popea has been the toast of the town, performed and recorded more times than the Beatles have been covered by wannabe rock bands. It's got everything. Lust, power, and a soundtrack that slaps harder than a real housewife at a wine tasting. And let's talk about the divas and divos bringing this juicy Roman romp to life. They're serving up drama with a capital D, hitting those high notes like their lives depend on it, and probably breaking a few wine glasses along the way. So, next time you're thinking of binging on some ancient drama, skip the Gladiator reruns and get yourself some Monteverdi. Because let's face it, nothing says I'm cultured like bragging about watching a 400-year-old opera on a Friday night. And that's a wrap on this blast from the past. Keep it locked on Newsbang for all the culture that's fit to broadcast. And remember, when it comes to opera, it ain't over till the plus-sized lady sings. Newsbang. Unraveling the tangled web of deceit one fact at a time. And now, just time for a look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times. British Navy crushes French in Caribbean battle. There's a map there of the Caribbean. The Guardian, Seattle workers strike for wages. The Mail, Manchester United crash kills 23. There's a picture there of a wrecked plane. And finally, the Mirror. Sally Ann ain't no lady. That's all from us this evening. On the day that two men were taken to court in London charged with being disguised as women, the case was dropped when it was discovered that they were women disguised as men. Good night from me and from my co-presenter who isn't here because she doesn't exist. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.